Okay, so for my third podcast episode, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Veronica Vogler, who I have been in quiet awe of for, I would say a little over a year now. So I, I stumbled upon her teaching on a whim. I wanted a public uh, practice, so I went to a nearby yoga studio in North Portland. Um, the, the studio I went to, to be completely honest, wasn't, it's not my favorite place for a traditional yoga class. I find it to be a little bit more exercise focused and a more, as in general, a more modern approach to yoga. Um, which isn't bad or wrong. Um, it has its place, it has its following, but for my teaching style and my practice style, I, I really look for the traditional um, practice and teaching. So I was so happy to walk into Veronica's class and experience her. And what I would say about her is there's almost like this mystery that kind of envelopes her. There's this mystery and there's this sultriness about her. She's generally um, dressed in all white, which provides a certain sort of energetic field around her, if that makes sense. Um, she has these heavy silver bangles always bound around her ankles and her wrists and that's something that we um i asked her about during our our chat um there's a purpose for it so stay tuned for that part i think it's towards the end um so yeah anyways when i walked into her class um it was just such a nice surprise to first sit and we sat and we breathed and we had a, a like a 10 minute long pranayama practice before we did any movement, before we did any asana. Asana is posture. Uh, and this is very rare to find in, in our modern day yoga class, especially I find in Portland. Um, and and then we, we got moving and our practice was very rhythm, rhythmic and, and very breath focused, and which is a very traditional vinyasa. And I think that's easy to find in Portland. But beyond that, it was balanced and traditional. And when I say traditional, it was almost as if this sense of being shrouded in ancestors dating back 5,000 years that were like whispering in Veronica's ears of what to say and how to lead and how to be. And I walked out of that class kind of beside myself, kind of wondering what just happened and who was that mystical creature and where do I find her again? I, cause that first class I took, I think she was a sub four. So it took me several months actually to find her home studio. Um, and then I did, I found out where she practices regularly and, um, lucky for us, she's relocated here from New York. So for some time she was straddling, I'm not sure how you do this, straddling teaching in New York and Portland because she lived most of her life in New York up until uh, the past three years, I think. Um, and now I, I get the, the pleasure of practicing with her every Wednesday and then the even greater honor of having the time to sit down with her, chat with her, soak up some of that knowledge and the, 
the pure presence that she just occupies when you're with her. So this conversation is really, you know, this is only my third podcast episode, but I really wanted to just let Veronica talk. So it's funny, I prepared for this with a list of like 20 questions and then I ended up asking, I think maybe like three of the 20 questions. So you'll hear me say several times, man, I wish we had more time or gosh, we have to do this again because I haven't gotten through not even a third of what I wanted to ask you. But it's because when she starts talking, she has this enigmatic quality where I just want her to keep going and I just want her to keep sharing her knowledge, which is very deep and very, um, it's very wise. And it comes from a place of knowing. She has trained with some of our ancient teachers. Her world-renowned teacher, Sri Dharma Mitra, is now 80 years old and he's actually a direct descendant of Swami Vishnu Devananda, which is one of the original yogic forefathers that brought yoga to the Western states. Uh, So I just find that ability to soak up that knowledge from her who, and this is the, the traditional practice of yoga, the Upanishad. Upanishad means to sit near to, and this is how the knowledge of yoga has been passed down for 5,000 years. You sit with your teacher as a disciple and he passes you the knowledge by way of word. He, he just teaches you what he knows and then you, the disciple, take that and then um, learn it and embody it. And again, you pass it down to your disciples. And, and in that way, we've spread yoga throughout the West. And of course, it's evolved. Oh man, I could go on and on. I mean, this conversation, we we talk about living in a culture of PTSD, the age of Aquarius, the safe yoga space of Portland, and what it's like to be in this city practicing yoga, teaching yoga, as compared to what it's like teaching and practicing yoga throughout the rest of the world, because I find that Portland is a very unique culture of yoga, and um, you'll find that Veronica agrees with me. We talk a little bit about the meaning of Hatha yoga in the traditional sense and how Portland kind of embraces what Hatha yoga means. Um, we talk about some of Veronica's favorite grounding practices. One she mentions is tea ceremony. And one of my favorite answers or kind of musings of her is when she talks about human evolution from the basis form of matter to animal to human and that being born as a human is actually the last birth. Oh, I could go on. Okay, but for now, I give you the mysterious and sultry Veronica Vogler. Please enjoy. All right. Hi, Veronica. Hi. Thank you for agreeing to talk to me. I've been actually wanting to talk to you for a while now, probably over a year. Oh, wow. So it's, this, this thought has been running through my head, and not in the context of a podcast interview, but from the lens of being a, a yoga teacher and um, also being a student of yoga and coming from, I think you come from a fairly strong lineage of, of yoga, so steeped in tradition and ritual and... Um, which I'll get into some specific questions around that in a little bit, but I wanted to start with my first experience of you because I don't think you were aware of me 
as a student. I don't know if you remember this, but I remember very clearly walking into a class. Um, it was at Firelight. I think it was in that back earth room. And I think you might have been subbing for somebody because I left that class thinking, oh my God, what just happened? <laughs> That's the impression most people leave with. And in a good way. For me, I was like, okay, that was, that felt, it's hard to put words to something like this, but it felt transformative. It felt like what I'm looking for in a, in a yoga asana class, but it was more than an asana class. It, we did pranayama, we did mantra, we did meditation. Um, and I, I find that, I find that actually challenging to find in Portland in particular, maybe around the world. I don't know what your experience is with this. Yeah, I think it's uh, interesting because Portland is so um, well-developed in so many things like food yeah. and wellness, but yoga has a um, almost undeveloped feel here because, um, you know, they call my classes vinyasa in mm -hmm. all the studios <laughs> I teach no matter what. and. Um, that's because for some reason Hatha um, has a, some reason has gotten the name of restorative yoga mm -hmm. or become associated with restorative or restful yoga when I have always practiced traditional Hatha yoga and it's very difficult mm -hmm. uh, and real Hatha where you're holding poses for like seven minutes is excruciating like, you know, tear you literally cry um but here as soon as you put hatha anywhere it's the people um want it to be slow and i don't know restorative so yeah especially with firelight you know which is a hot studio um it's very you know it's very nice to be able to trick people into a more um more deep practice and i teach there now a traditional classic you just had here but in a hot room mm -hmm. which oh, has taken okay. about a year or so to develop because the culture is different people like pop music rap music, fast movement yeah. and all like also yoga has this very workout um focus in portland so it's like workout or restorative mm -hmm. and anything and there isn't like a between space for deep spiritual practice or it's associated with um, something that's you know almost like a I don't want to say eat pray love but like something that's like <laughs> you know like a commercial where you're like oming and you know like those typical yoga commercials when you know it's hard work it's not meant to be easy because you know nothing that's worth having is easy to get and you're meant to, um, you know, also, for instance, have like a shavasana, which I don't know if any teachers, I, I've been told I'm one of the few that has shavasana. And to me, that's just bizarre because that's one of the most important and actually one of the hardest practices because even for a few minutes, people can't stay still. Mm -hmm. I'm always watching. Yeah. <laughs> people are in shavasana, <laughs> I'm yeah. scratching their nose. <laughs> Yeah, that's so true. Um, it's it's really interesting. I'm not. I'm, I'm curious about how that happened here in Portland, in a in a town where we have so much developed culture around food and 
being outdoors and stuff. And it seems like, I don't know where I'm getting this rationale, but to me, I feel like we as a community in this area are more conscientious sometimes, more environmentally friendly sometimes. You know, there's a, a big biking community. And it, I guess it kind of surprises me, the approach to yoga. But I don't think it's um, anomalous to Portland. I feel like, and I haven't traveled a lot and, and experienced a lot of yoga in different cities, but I wonder if it's like a modern-day approach to yoga. But I think you come from New York, right? Right. So I'm curious, you know, over the years of practice and travel, because I know you've traveled beyond the United States and, and done yoga all over the world, like India, I think, is one place you go to frequently. Go to frequently, yeah. So what is it like out I there? Mean, um, I have always had a very traditional... Um, schooling in yoga most of my teachers have been like very strict male teachers uh in a very traditional practice and that started years ago in india where uh, my teacher uh pralaji who is amazing he's the head of shivananda uh, yeah, okay. worldwide he was a disciple of swami vishnu devananda and was with him mm-hmm. uh, until the end of his physical days mm-hmm. And, you know, I even can recall him at the end of practice being like, relax, 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 relax. And it was like the most unrelaxing thing. But that's, you know, and then I met my teacher in New York, Dharmaji, who's also, he comes from that Guru Kula school where what the teacher says is the law. So I always tell students, like, it's okay, you know, if, if Dharma did like the same side of your body, like you do the twist both on the right side, and you know, like he forgot to do the left side, mm-hmm. you just repeat, you don't change it. Mm-hmm. You don't go against the teacher because there's no right and wrong. What the teacher says is the law, mm-hmm. regardless. So I come from like a very, <laughs> but I'm also a very old soul. Like to me, that, that resonates this mm-hmm. old, like traditional. Um, practice and I know a lot of people want to be held and there's you know and want to be you know that's what I think Portland is it's great for a lot of safe spaces for people and I think um, people can find a lot of healing in yoga in that sense and I think it'd be very beneficial and very helpful Um, I just come from it from a different approach Mm -hmm. To me, it's a spiritual practice, which is not necessarily a safe space. Um, and, you know, I've had people walk out of my classes because I do teach like an old man. <laughs> and I'm bossy and sassy or whatever. It's because the practice is really serious. It's very serious for me and it's not uh, meant to be fun. You know, I understand the safe space aspect of it. To me, it's something more. Mm-hmm. Um, I always say you have to use um, the technology for what it's for. You know, you don't want to be driving a Ferrari on a dirt road in the countryside. That's mm-hmm. not where you optimize that um, technology. Uh, so to me, the, the practice of yoga is to optimize your technology, to upgrade, to understand, to remember uh, 
who you are, what this is, why you're here. And that's a very, that's not a comfortable place to be because, you know, it's like a butterfly or a caterpillar breaking out of the cocoon. It's painful. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't shy away from pain because I feel like it's a very, it's a necessity. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no differentiation between the pleasure or the pain. That's really the essence of mm -hmm. also the practice. You know, um, I love that. There's no differentiation between the pleasure and the pain. Have you always approached your practice like that? I mean, I try. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was, I was looking over your questions, and you were, and one of them said, "What is your practice?" I'm like, just being human. <laughs> uh, that's my practice. <laughs> Hard <You> know, enough. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because everything's a meditation, everything's a practice, and um, I was saying earlier this morning to. Uh, the students that I gauge my how deep my practice is by how long it takes me to recover from something unpleasant <laughs> okay so if a situation triggers you an issue comes up right the reaction the reaction time to that what is it like how tumultuous does it feel how long does it take right. you to let that pass that's your yeah, that's a great gauge I like that. And then, you know, and just being able to watch the emotion without identifying with it. Um, and that's like, you know, the, the teachings of the Buddha, just to watch the body, just watch what is happening in your body. It's all um, electric, you know, your emotions, but they're like ingrained. And when we're, you know, opening up the body, you know, like some people look at it as a workout, but to me, it's like releasing those, that electricity, mm -hmm. those memories, those um, emotions, which we, you know, I feel like we are all like PTSD mm -hmm. <laughs> people walking around and we have so much trauma, like, just to be alive is so painful that it's so important to understand why you are going through this. Otherwise, it can be a very miserable life. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So I guess what I'm curious, I'm really curious about is how you found yoga. Um, you know, how old were you? How did you... And then I have a series of questions about... I, I think that people might have this question a lot. It, certainly, I think I've heard it from my students that there's this question of, well, what does it mean to have a teacher? And how do you find a teacher? And I'm using air quotes because <laughs> it's my teacher says, be careful what you ask for. Or because then, you know, a guru is um, a guru or a teacher, depending on how you define it, is not a, necessarily an easy person to have in your life. It's somebody who's going to push you. It's somebody who's going to um, help you break out of your cocoon, help you become the butterfly because they've been there and they can only take you as far as they've gone. So you want to be, of course, careful about choosing a teacher, paying attention to how they live their life and um, how they interact with people and, and things of that nature. I'm getting off on a tangent. My original question was, <laughs> when did you first, when did yoga come into your life? How did you find it? I think my grandmother practiced a form of yoga, oh. but she's no longer around, so I can't ask her. But I remember like sneaking in, and she would always have some kind of morning practice mm -hmm. uh, in her room. 
uh, it was a lot of stretching and like poses that she I can like faintly remember in my mind's eye. Uh, but I've come from you know my I'm a political refugee. My family uh, was Russian, grew up in communist Russia before coming here, and we're Russian Orthodox. And I remember from a very early age, like I really love, there's, I forget which holiday it is, but there's one night where you go to a Russian church and it's, they just sing all night and they burn frankincense. And it's like, if you've ever been to, it's a very beautiful ceremony. Just like the smell of frankincense, the really old icons, the like monks that like walk up and down the aisles. And I just, I feel like I've always had a very spiritual, um, or just a connection to the spirit of things of, and the rituals in which you can um, connect to that spirit. And I find yoga to be just one of those ways. And I feel like the word has been almost too solidified in a certain meaning where I like more the fluidity. So in my practices, you know, I was talking about Wei this morning, that like Zen technique of like the flow. Like I love the Tao. Mm-hmm. There's so many, to me it's all yoga. It's just, um, it's just different aspects of practicing being. Yeah, and what, you said it was Wu Wei. How do you spell Wu-wei, that? Wu Wei, W-U-W-E-I, which is like That's finding- Taoism? It's a concept in Taoism okay. where you flow with um, the path of least resistance. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you don't question. You do what needs to be done, but sometimes not doing anything is preparing you for the doing. Mm-hmm. And that's a very hard concept to understand in our society because we want to do 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 and that, that's what vinyasa really is about people are moving around a lot and they think they're getting a lot done when i tell them to hold something <laughs> they don't it becomes a lot harder for them because they the mind starts to unravel and also because it's like the sense that i'm not accomplishing what i need to accomplish you know we're in this like rat race to accomplish something but and the the essence of accomplishing something in this way is like to gather and to like have and to like, it's like, you know, you have your merits, you're holding the merits of your actions. Whereas I believe like the deeper practice unloading, it's to become empty, mm-hmm. empty inside. Um, you know, I was reading that there's this, I was just telling Emmett, um, he's a musician. There's this exhibition in New York where they took all these old vessels, like pots and you know all, all kinds of different containers. Some of them are 2,000 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and they found all the musical notes. So it's like a room full of um, pottery and all kinds of instruments. But each empty uh, space has a note, has a vibration. Mm-hmm. When you clutter it up, you lose the note, you know, you, you don't have the sound. And that's like our vessel has a pure vibration. And to me, the practice is like unlayering it into 
you know, that stillness. That's what the Tao is. It's like the void of the 10,000 things which creates everything and is behind everything, but in essence, you know, invisible. Um, it's this concept of, what I forget, there's this quote, but it's like, in doing nothing, the master leaves nothing undone. Mm, oh, that's good, I like that. <laughs> you know, and this idea that everything is, is getting done, even in the stillness, you are generating the cells for the next action, the power for the next thing that you're doing. Whereas we tend to run away from those empty spaces. I feel like that requires an immense amount of trust to be able to be still, trust that in the stillness all is coming. And um, <laughs> I like what you said earlier about this being a culture of PTSD. Not that I like that idea, but that it's it resonates in that uh, it's hard for us all to, to slow down and be still because it almost seems like a culture of fear uh, or of keeping up with the Joneses or of gathering all of these things to, to reach that platitude of success, whatever that means. But it seems to me like the more we reach a platitude, then there's that much more pressure to remain at that level. And then it's like, well, now what's next from there? So it's even if you reach that platitude, it's like, okay, well, I'm not happy here now. I still don't feel fulfilled. I'm still longing and seeking, and this isn't the thing I thought it was going to be. Um, That's because you can't, you can't um, outsource certain things and um, the wholeness of your being is not something you can outsource and we you know we're like passing from the third chakra into the fourth chakra in time and space you know mm -hmm. we're coming right now we're still kind of in the third chakra of fear war like mm -hmm. you know resources all this you know the query the age of the querying age is the heart chakra is like we're coming into that space where we're seeing each other, where there's more community, where people are being recognized for their beliefs more, but we're still, um, we're still, we still, we haven't gotten quite to the fourth level of the, of the game. So from that perspective is the belief that we've started from the root, from Muladhara, mm -hmm. that we've established a sense of safety and security move through the sacral chakra. So we've established a sense of creativity and um, and so like we're coming up the ladder. I mean, I, it doesn't need to be that linear, but in my mind, that's how my mind is working right now. I, I think I'm thinking about this because I keep this idea of spiritual bypass keeps coming up in conversation. It's a phrase I hear a lot. Yeah, Tell right? me, what do, what do you identify with that? that my understanding is um, you know, recognizing that yes, there are these issues that I need to deal with, whether it's the PTSD idea or some um, something inside of myself that is rubbing me the wrong way or causing problems, a addictive habit or behavior. So the spiritual bypass, my understanding, and I haven't delved that deep into it, so this is just the world according to me, my own opinion. Right. <laughs> Um, Valid. 
is that there are these practices, these ritual um, things that we can do, like maybe it's a mudra or a mantra or a meditation that washes that away without actually confronting it and letting it come up and letting it be fully in your body, letting that energy, you kind of talked about the electricity of the mm -hmm. body, letting it fully manifest. So it's, my understanding is that it's not, not necessarily pushing it down, per se, not suppressing this stuff that needs to come up, but more like taking an eraser and magically waving your wand and making it disappear. Right. Which I don't think is helpful. I don't think that's possible. I don't know. I'm not a magician, but... Well, just that very essence of, like, needing to take something out, there's... Everything, in essence, is the same. Mm -hmm. It's only your perception that makes a differentiation. So if you're needing to take something out, the problem is not that, is the, the problem is that you are creating the difference. Mm -hmm. There should be no difference. You have to experience everything. You know, we are, we've been born through all the stages of life, so you've been butterflies and lions and whatever like going up through the level you know of levels of consciousness and the human birth is the last birth and you have to be born 80 I think they say like 86,000 life births before you can reach an enlightened or evolved right. state. I mean you probably can get there quicker but the idea right. is that you're born as everything so you're born a man you're born a woman you're born as gay you're born as straight you want it you experiencing everything all levels of consciousness i mean the poses i always believed are named after animals so you can remember that aspect of your consciousness so you're creating the shapes with your consciousness i mean you're molding the consciousness with the shape you're creating with your body and i think it's a part of the Remembering, remembering, you know, that first chakra, that time when, you know, there's a lot, I always say there's like this, a lot of emphasis on like reaching enlightenment and bypassing everything that's mm -hmm. like in the lower, you know, like don't have sex, don't, don't have mm -hmm. emotions, don't have fear. But if, you're, if your first chakra isn't very healthy, then you'll never um, arrive mm -hmm. uh, into the higher understanding of your consciousness. The first chakra is a place where you connect to the earth, to your ancestors, to the planets, to the stars, to where you like really come from. And we've lost, you know, we're so in technology, we don't even know where we're going without our phones. Mm -hmm. So we've actually lost a lot by that disconnection. How did you find your um, teacher? When did you come to study? Dharma? Is that the school? Is it Dharma? It's the school's Dharma, and uh -huh. my teacher is Sri Dharma Mitra. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think a friend of mine, we were in a Jiva Mukti class, I think, and he was like, he was like the most advanced in the class, and he was like, no, you need to go to we need to go see Dharma. And I was like, oh, and so when Dharma had his old studio on, uh, on 23rd. And this is in New York, right? Yeah, 23rd and 3rd, I believe. And I went up there and I was like, 
very small room. It was very crowded. I was all the way in the back. And everybody was like this master because he's a teacher for teachers. Okay. So he's a teacher's teacher. I was all Were the way you a teacher at that time? No, I was just okay. practicing. And mm-hmm. he came back all, you know, I think I was doing like a side twist. And he came uh, over to me and he like just completely took me and like twisted me. And he looked at me and said, if you can do it right the whole time, why, why were you wasting time doing it the other way or something like that? And I was like, oh my God, yes, okay. Um, you know, they spent many years going to Dharma and uh, he remains a very big part of my life. But I think um, in terms of finding a teacher, I think I've had many teachers and in being a teacher myself, all my students are my teachers. As soon as you assume the role of teachers, your students are your teachers. Mm-hmm. So I think everything is, um, that consciousness at every moment is revealing something to you, either through what somebody says to you or through an experience of what, you know, if you're paying attention, you know, that's what, being connected to animals is, or being connected to nature, and you go up and you notice the signs, you know, when your senses of perception are clear, you're able to pick up the clues, you know, nothing, you know, the consciousness is expressing itself to itself. So every moment is, a, is an opportunity to learn something, right? And ultimately, you have to, you know, you have to do a really deep practice with somebody, of course, that will will show you the way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, guru, the you know the lighter, lighting the darkness mm-hmm. of the path. But ultimately, you can't outsource that. Mm-hmm. There's nobody that's your teacher except you, mm-hmm. and you are learning from all the moments around you. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very important not to, not to outsource that part mm-hmm. of your being because we are so powerful and we lost like the connection to our power and we want everybody else to do everything else for us. We don't want to put in the work to do it or maybe we're afraid of finding out like our superpower. Mm-hmm. But it's so much deeper than this like, and then what history says and what is written down. You know, I, I always like to say that it's, we've all come on vacation. Like, we've decided to be born as humans and we pick who we're born with and our tribe. Like, we predetermine all this. And then we come here for our vacation to, like, being the beauty of this, like, con- this conscious cosmic wave and as soon as we come into this form we forget like the whole purpose of what we're doing and we just get stuck in the fear it's in the suffering in the day-to-day and the accumulation of things you can't take any of these things with you I mean even Dharma who's you know he's very famous for this poster of like over a thousand poses they're like Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So that poster he did in the 80s as um, an offering, as karma yoga to his teacher. And when he did it, 
There was no iPhones. You had to do it with a button, <laughs> with a camera. You had to be in the pose and click the button at the same time. And some of those poses, he had to fast for like a month, just cat cantaloupe or melon, mm. you know, just to get the pose once, you know. And he said, if he wasn't thinking of God or whatever that means for you, you know, that's such a, in a way it's become like a not popular term, but the divine, whatever that, whatever you pray to, whatever, you know, because we all pray, we just sometimes don't know we're doing it that conversation you're having inside your head when you're in fear or you're hurt or you're alone or that's prayer. It's just we don't share in prayer as community in this culture. Mm -hmm. um, and he said if he wasn't thinking of God, he would have, and you know, you have to like develop the film and get it and then he wouldn't count it. You have to do it all over again. Then like, <laughs> and then, wow. He mastered all these poses, and that poster hangs. So most people don't even know, you know, in yoga studios, people have no idea, like, who that even is, mm -hmm. um, which is a shame, mm -hmm. because there are only a few masters left in the world mm -hmm. who really hold to the spiritual teachings. Like, a lot of the spiritual teachings have been stripped. It has become more of a workout, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. But I digress. The, <laughs> the um, thing with the poses is that, you know, Dharma's 80 now. He could still stand on his head without any arms, just like, like a pencil. Wow. And he can do, like, scorpion. He can do all. He's eight, he just turned 80. But he says that every year he lets go of certain poses. Hmm. So even if you reach all of like the infinite postures, you'll A, never get them all, and it doesn't matter because you have to return what's borrowed. Mm -hmm. Just when you return this body, it's borrowed. Mm -hmm. You can't take any of it with you. So this idea of accumulating, you know, it's, it's a real disease of this time. Mm -hmm. it, does it feel... The word that's coming to my mind is easy, but I don't feel like that's, not, that's the right adjective. But I guess what I'm wondering is from, for you, to, you know, having this teacher, having this perspective, having this um, way of being in the world and talking to students and learning, when you go to approach something like an asana practice with your teacher, uh, what does that feel like in your body? What happens in your mind? Does it... You know, all the normal human emotions come up where it's like a conversation about how long are we going to be holding this? I'm feeling... What happens? <laughs> well, Dharma is a very uh, rigorous uh, physical practice. And the idea, as I've understood it, the idea behind that is got to break the body to break the mind. Um, you're using the body to break the mind. Not, and so this type of languaging is where we get into trouble with safe spaces. Yeah, <laughs> because they're like, you're going to break your body? <laughs> yeah, but you, so. have to, you have to use the tools you have. So what do you have? You have the body. And how do you get to the mind? Through the body. Mm -hmm. So you're using the instrument that you have to get into the deeper resisting and to reset the patterns of your thinking. Because what really 
motivates change is, un it, it's never like when you're having a great time that you're like, I'm gonna take this great change in my life. It's usually when something has gone awry in your life that you are switching into something different. And I think that's the idea behind it is that you are breaking your limit and you have to break your limit to surpass it, right? Mm -hmm. So you're constantly like expanding the thought and changing the pattern of the mind that doesn't want to stay in the pose, right? And you know, you're applying it to the pose, but then once you understand that mechanism, you can apply it to everything. So are you going through that kind of thought process when you're going through a practice? Well, I mean, I've gone through it all. So everyone, every Dharma yogi is like extremely flexible and, like, and my body is not that, you know, I'm, I don't, I'm not a very flexible person. And my practice isn't very physical. Um, I do a lot of pranayama, I do meditation, I do tea ceremony. I, do, I have a Cree teacher, I do sweat lodges. I mean, my practice is different um, branches and I'm not like a super flexible person. You know, and that was hard for a while because you know, the ego wants, and you know, and it's like, you, you have to break that. You can't be like the most flexible person. And that's not, that's also not the point. Right. But, uh, you know, we're all going through this. And, you know, I always say when you're holding a pose and it's uncomfortable, like I understand because I felt all those emotions, but understanding that the pose isn't the goal, the practice is the goal, the pose is not the goal. It's just a means to an end. So in speaking about that guru kula, that like very strict law of the teacher, what the teacher says, there was a time when Dharma at the end of every hour, class, an hour and a half, mm -hmm. the end of each class, he would do a bunch of danyarasanas, like a bunch of bow poses. It'd be like seven minutes of bow pose, like bow poses. Straight or did you have breaks in between? Well, that's the thing. So usually at the end of the class, people have like the, expression to do the time to express like any poses because the poses are meant to be offering so yeah. you know you offer them to the teacher you offer them as you know it's like a cosmic dance to the divine uh, in essence that you're just using the body for and there was a sh and i i really was never a fan of danyarasana um and i remembered at the end of one of these classes I realized that in this stretch of like seven minutes or whatever, it was a very long time, he never said to actually release the pose. And like, every, you know, it's the end of class, it's a little bit more playful and people like come out of the pose, come into a pose, come into a different variation of the pose or like do some kind of inversion. It's a very playful, nice time. But Dharma doesn't care. Like if you are listening or you're not listening, he's not going to reproach you for it. It's like you're, you know, that's the thing with like trying to, like that spiritual life, trying to like steer things a certain way or, you know, you're, you're gonna hear what needs to be heard or you don't hear it, you know? And, no, and nobody needs to point that out to you. When you're ready, you hear it. And so I remember him realizing that he like never said to let go of the pose. And I held the pose for like seven or eight minutes. And for a body that's not flexible, like mine, like I was almost in tears. It, 
it was like excruciating. He came by me and he, and he knew that I was holding it. And he said, one more minute. And I was like, <laughs> but like, didn't matter what the, everybody else was doing all these other things in the class. He knew that I was doing the pose. He knew that I listened to what he had really said, which was come into the pose. You know, and, and that's what the, you know, when you clear the senses of perception, those little details, not just like that, but that's just one example of it, but those little details in the, in the weaving of this cosmic tapestry, they, they just become more prevalent. Mm. And you start to pick up the clues. They're like breadcrumbs mm. to remember the way. So I'm curious about, one thing that strikes me about you is the way that you present. Um, and when I first came into that first class with you, I noticed the, the bangles on the ankles. And I have this memory, and I'm not sure if I made this up or dreamt it or if it really happened, <laughs> of you talking about the ones on your ankles specifically um, binding into the earth, maybe? Am I making this up? They're grounding. Okay. They are very grounding. I've worn them for many years. I can't remember how long. And I've switched them out. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've never taken them off unless I throw them into, like, I've thrown them off the cliff at Esalen. Mm -hmm. And I find places where I want to offer them. Um, but then I have, like, another set that goes back on. Okay. Those are worn. And then when they're meant to be released, they're meant to be uh, released into nature, which is, like, a form of uh, the release of, like, carrying something and constantly the practice of, like, letting it go. Is there an inner voice that tells you that this is time? Or is it just a feeling? I think it's just... You know, it's just like a little flicker, just like, oh, and that's it. But then if you're not paying attention, that's what I mean about that sense of perception. You don't hear it because the voice inside is so low and so quiet. And the more we bombard ourselves with the things around, the harder it is to hear that. Mm -hmm. and, and I think it's very important to catch those, those moments when it speaks and to cultivate that. Um, that voice. How do you do that? What's your practice for cultivating your quiet, or the, the ability to listen to the voice that is so quiet? Tea is very helpful. I did tea ceremony, which um, it just, you know, boil water, have tea, drink the water, mm -hmm. drink the tea. You know, it's a very old, ancient practice. Uh, of meditation, of just you know practicing the being in the moment, like and only um, focusing on the one boiling the water. So you're only boiling the water when you're like holding the cup. You're feeling the clay. You're feeling the water touch your lip. Just like that moment to moment um, cultivation of of like dynamic stillness and movement um you know it's like <laughs> dynamic stillness and movement <laughs> yeah it's like everything's happening but you're like at the center and you're yeah. like it's it's really cultivating um all the senses 
and remaining empty because it's just so easy to drift out, you know, and then I find, you know, Vipassana is very helpful as well. Silent meditation. And that's generally performed for, is, it, is there a minimum of days? or is it It's like 10, 10 days. days. And then you realize why all the poses are just for sitting. Because when you're sitting for 15, you know, it's like, I think it's 15 hours a day, your body's in a lot of pain just from the sitting. Mm-hmm. So, um, but, you know, it's nice to do those types of things. You know, I was just talking to a student who, does a bunch of ayahuasca mm-hmm. and like gets um, a little download. But I believe in something that is sustainable that you don't need to have these, you know, because all like big things that are very intense in a short amount of time are, they're gonna shift your ener- energy field, but like if, how do you sustain that is my concern. So I find that these uh, practices are good as um, kind of like a resetting or like when you do a fast. Mm-hmm. But ultimately I feel like the real practice is in the doing nothing. Mm-hmm. And the practice is, that's it. There is no practice. The practice is just being human. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I also wonder about with things like that sitting for ceremony with ayahuasca. Um, and when you kind of touched on this this morning in practice where you mentioned even a mudra, if you're not ready for it, can unleash, not necessarily the mudra itself, but the energy of the mudra can yeah. release something that's very powerful if you're not prepared for it, if you're not sure how to react to it, what to do with that energy. It can be as maybe jarring as having a really bad trip on of mushrooms or something like that. Well, because you, anytime you, you move your, you, the kundalini energy or whatever you want to describe that energy, which is the awakening of the self, it's very turbulent. That's why it is, you don't have to literally believe that it's a coiled up snake, uh, but that image is there to give you a reference that when you're like holding breaths and you're doing the bandhas, you are suffocating. You are suffocating and contracting the space around that like sleeping snake, if you will. Like imagine it's sleeping and you're cutting out and it starts to like thrash about. Now I've had a snake and I've seen it thrash and it's not a pleasant, is there a, did I see a picture of you with a snake around your neck? I did. That's my snake, Lazarus. Okay, so this is your snake. Yes. And is it a pet snake? Does, does he live at snake. home with you? No, he's still in New York, so okay. I haven't found a way to... It's very hard to fly a snake over yeah. here. But yeah. um, I used to actually teach with him around my neck. Probably not a safe space in Portland for that. But <laughs> oh, my gosh. I want to go to that class. It's Yeah. But, you know, the thrashing of the snake is very, uh, and the funny thing, you know, this is about like, again, perception. So we have the snake is a very powerful animal and not at all how we have identified. And it's funny because in, in, in our culture, we don't want, nobody wants you to know who, what your real power is. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why it's, you know, people are telling you what to eat how to live your life, you know, like you need a guru, that you have like no power, you have like trauma, you get caught up and you're like on Instagram and everyone's living a better life than you. And it's like 
crazy what's happening. And the symbol of the snake has always been you coming into the knowledge. The snake is the one with Adam and Eve that showed them the knowledge. You know, it's always been the pharaohs wore the serpents on their crown. It's always been an image of power until like we changed, you know, the paradigm. Now it almost seems synonymous with evil. Yeah, but it's not. And so the, the time that I saw my snake thrashings, I had, was like a pretty new snake owner. And I put my, you know, it had been like two, they don't eat uh, very often. You know, they eat once or twice uh, every month or two. Oh, wow. Okay. And they only eat if they're hungry. Uh-huh. And, you know, like two months I've gone by. So I was like, you know, they don't tell you yeah. if they're hungry or not. And I put in two mice. And... The thing is, if they're not hungry, they won't kill something. Mm-hmm. So they only kill when they are hungry. And because it still, for some reason, was not hungry, like it loses its uh, killing instinct mm-hmm. and it cohabitates. And actually, I woke up to it thrashing because the mice were trying to eat it. Oh. And, it and it was a python, and he still wouldn't kill them. Huh. So, I mean, if more people were like that. <laughs> You know, it's like just perceptions yeah. uh, ingrained in our consciousness of what things are or, yeah. you know, the lens that we see through things is um, what creates the whole experience for us. But it's ultimately like us. I always say everything that you think about another person really has more to say about you than about them. Every... every um, way you describe an experience is according to your trauma, according to the, the, the stories you've been told. And like, we're all moving from a place of trauma and then we're trying to like, think that it's actually reality when nothing about this plane is real. I mean, just your like backpack. So it's like mustard yellow, but that means that it's everything but mustard yellow. Mm-hmm. It reflects back only the thing that it is not. So this backpack is all the other colors except this color. And then I see this color and think that this backpack is this color. When that is absolutely not what's happening. That's kind of mind blowing. But that's, <laughs> that's like what we live in. Like, yeah. and then we, you know, consciousness is like, like, you know, it's like, you know those cans of air or whatever, like people, you go to a city, like buy, they bottle up like, the, the, the air, air. From the city? Yeah, and it's like that. Like, we're trying to, like, bottle up and experience mm-hmm. according to our mind. But the mind is good for language. The mind is good for communication. It's good for, um, like, a very linear understanding. But it's important to, when you're done with the mind, to put the mind down mm-hmm. so you don't trip over it. <laughs> To put We've, it down, put it away. We don't know how to do that, do we? No. <sighs> okay, let's let's have one more question. And um, well, I, I want to tell you a funny story. Oh, okay, that tell answers me. one of your questions. Yeah, please tell me. So, what was my like fondest memory as a child? Mm. I think was the question. So, I grew up in communist Russia, and I remember um, my mother kept saying, "We're going to America." And I had to learn how to count to 10. How old were you? I think I was four. Four, okay. And I had to learn how to count to 10 in English, and it was a whole, it was just very exciting to understand. She showed it to me on the map, 
the shape of America, and I, as a child, like understood that map. And at that time, Gorbachev was always, I was the president at that time, was always on the telly. Mm -hmm. And my grandparents were watching, you know, he would always, you know, it's like, because it was like Reagan and bringing down the wall and all this stuff was going on, late 80s. And I kept looking at his head, and at some point, like the wires in my brain, this is like the power of what you think, crossed and identified, you know, he had this big birthmark on his head that he was notorious for, because he had like a bald head and a big birthmark. And I identified that shape with the shape of America that my mom found on the map. So I was, for a whole year, I thought we were going to like Gorbachev's forehead and I could, I was like so excited. And my mother like could not understand at all what was happening, but those two shapes just became one. Oh, interesting. <laughs> so did you land in America shortly after four years old? Were you here? No, we, we, we moved to Italy. Uh, uh, I lived in Italy for a little bit, and then we came over to New York, mm. 80s in New York. Mm. Wow. So that was... And is your family still in New York? Nope, my mother uh, moved here oh, after I did. Okay. Yep. Very cool. I feel like my, you know, move was really to facilitate her coming out here in a way. Mm. Mm. I want to ask you a million more questions. Okay, one one question um, to take away for people that are listening to take away, or for the students, what is there? Um, like, if you could just teach one concept, or just leave students with one essence of the practice. I know that's very narrow, <laughs> but I'm I'm curious. I mean, is there like a favorite teaching you have? My favorite lesson. You're kind of a mission that you're like, just remember this one thing. If nothing else, you'll have a good life. <laughs> I would say you have to remember that you are, you know, like a cosmic superhero, just traveling through this plane. So enjoy all the experiences um, as you would like being in a foreign land. Mm. That when it's time <laughs> to go, you know, put it down. But I don't know, I just really wish people would understand how magical they are and how much power they really have to do whatever they want, um, not to limit it to these worldly things, uh, not to forget your power. Yeah. Thank you. And um, stay off Instagram. And stay off Instagram. <laughs> P.S. I don't. Um, well, speaking of Instagram, though, if, if people do want to find you, what's the best way to do that? Your name is Veronica Vogler. You're, you don't have a website, do you? No, not yet. Okay. <laughs> I actually have. I got it a while ago, but I just haven't. Time hasn't come. Mm -hmm. But my handle is, which is also going to, the handle that I got from my website is Transcendental Airways. Okay. 
the airline to take you to your higher self. <laughs> I love With that. all the instructions <laughs> for your boarding. Oh my gosh, that's great. So will that be accessible to people? So your handle, is that like a Twitter handle and a Facebook handle? That's my Instagram. Instagram, Transcendental Airways. I know, I don't post, but I do a lot of stories. I like them because... people can find you that way, right? Like if somebody wants to come to a class and figure out what your schedule is, that might be a good way to find you. And of course, I'll I'll include show notes and I'll let people know. If you want to share your email address, by no means, there is no pressure. Um... Yeah, the same email. I think it's Transcendental Airways at Gmail. I do a newsletter, which I'm... Yes. Oh, that too. Yeah, that too. That's great. Usually I am. Yeah. So you usually write up kind of a concept. It's it's like a... I wanted to do it every... Yeah, I wanted to do it every week, and now it's turned into every month or two months, but I feel like you have to do things when you're inspired and not... um, Yeah. Not get too, too down on the... On the deadlines. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would agree with that. <laughs> First-hand experience. All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you go here. Thank you so much. It's been a real treat to chat with you. Yeah, likewise. I just feel lucky. I feel really grateful and lucky that you're here in Portland. Um, I know it's far away from New York, the other side of the country. Um, so I'm glad that you're here in Portland, and I really enjoy practicing with you I always learn something new always well I enjoy there's my time (laughs) I enjoy having you in class you know serious students and teachers you know we're all like I always say it's like Ram Dass we're all just walking each other home and Mm -hmm. so integral to the journey to be with the tribe of like-minded individuals so you're supporting me just as much by coming to class and Thank doing you. this and you know yeah. thank you yeah thank you all right i hope you enjoyed the conversation today if you have any feedback comments questions or even requests for future podcast topics please feel free to reach out to me on the social media handles Facebook at Tessa Marie Tovar, Instagram, yogi underscore Katniss, um, email address tessa.tovar, that's T-O-V as in Victor, A-R at iCloud.com. I love to hear from my students and I'm always happy to talk about this kind of thing for you. If you don't listen, I don't do this. And my goal is to spread the word about what yoga means on and off the mat in particular spreading the word outside of the studio thanks for tuning in and have a lovely day bye